Well, 400 A.D. was a pivotal moment in the history of the Western world. It was during this time that the eternal city, that city of Rome, is the city that everybody really, literally believed it would exist forever because of the power of that Roman Empire. It had been invaded, and it would become what was ultimately the downfall of the entire Roman Empire. The whole world literally stood in disbelief that something like this could ever happen. And, and as you might expect in a time like this, there were a lot of people wondering why and who was to blame. And do you know who was a primary target for that blame? Christians. And Christians were in the crosshairs of a lot of that blame going on because Constantine had, to, had kind of expressed favor towards the, the Christian community. And many people looked at that long history of worship of the gods and goddesses of the, the Greeks and the Romans, and they've said, listen, they're angry because you've turned from them to this person, Jesus Christ. And so now you're to blame. This is why everything is happening like it is. It's in this context that a, a man by the name of Augustine, a familiar name you've probably heard before, he wrote several things, but one of the things he wrote specifically during this time was a series of books called The City of God. And he originally wrote them to refute this charge against the Christians for having caused the fall of Rome. And within these books, he describes two cities, a heavenly city and an earthly city. He describes two coexisting realities that live with two very different sets of values and commitments. He goes on to explain that that Christians are citizens of this heavenly city. And they really have no desire to establish a kingdom on earth. Instead, they live by a totally different set of values. Uh, they live under the rule and reign of an eternal God who rules and reigns for all eternity. That's the eternal city that they are committed to. I, I tell you that because I sincerely believe that Paul has the very similar mindset in his letter to the Corinthians. He's trying to help them understand who they are as this new covenant community in Christ, living within this world of the unredeemed. Two coexisting realities that, that, that coexist within a very different and distinct set of values and and purposes in this life. Jason has used this word. Brad mentioned it a few weeks ago. This word peculiar. I love what Brad said when he spoke about that. And said when he looked it up. One of the things that caught his attention. Is this idea of unexpected. It's something that happens that you never saw coming. And that's really what should describe. The lives and the relationships of the Christian community. They should be counter to what you see happening in the world. They should be unexpected, completely distinct and different from the world around them. But Paul's concern when he writes the letter to the Corinthians is that's not what he sees. That the Corinthian church is just a subset of the world around them, just like the culture that exists around them. He, he points to some of the issues of uh, factions and immorality problems in relationships with one another and he's looking at the Corinthian church and he's saying guys I can't tell a whole lot of difference with what's happening inside your church and with what's happening outside in the world you're not distinct 
You're not peculiar. Last week we looked at how they were turning a blind eye towards sin. Doesn't bother me. Doesn't not my business. And Paul says it is your business. Because you represent an eternal king whose character and values should be imaged forth in your relationships with one another. And so now he looks at an issue of them not being able to settle their differences with one another and the divisions that is promoting as well. So before we look at that together, I want us to go to the Lord in prayer with this heart of understanding. What does it mean to be a new covenant community in Christ? Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you this morning, I do pray that we really have uh, an understanding of what it means to be a new covenant community through faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that we have a better appreciation through what we will examine this morning of how distinct and, and unique and just very peculiar the relationships that we are called to have with one another, what that looks like in comparison to what exists in the world around us. Help us to grasp that and be committed to that as we look at your word together. We pray this in your name. Amen. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, and let's pick up where we left off last. Before I read, I want to remind you where Paul left off last. He told the Corinthians, look, God is the one who's responsible for judging those outside the church. You, as a church family, are responsible for holding each other accountable in grace and love. And so look at how he continues that thought in, in chapter 6, verse 1. Does, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Again, Paul is recognizing, hey, there's two coexisting realities. And, and you're not living within the context of what God's called you to be as this new covenant community in Christ. He's condemning them for taking their differences that they have with one another outside the church to worldly judges to settle those matters. And here's what's ironic about it. If you'll think about what we've studied together in Corinthians so far, what have they been most prideful about? What, what have they been boasting about their superior what? Wisdom. Superior wisdom. And yet they are not wise enough to settle just small, petty matters in their relationships with one another. The fact that they're going outside of the church to the courts of the world to decide on these matters exposes the reality that they're not as wise as they claim to be. But I think there's a reason behind their decision to go to these external courts. And let me take us back to Corinth again. And I want to show you this city map. This is a different map. It's the same idea here. And I want you to pay particular attention to right here. That is what's called the Bema seat. It's a seat of judgment. And what would happen in the city of Corinth 
in many of the Roman cities like this during that time is that court cases were heard in public. The judge sat right there on the Bema seat. And the two parties who had a disagreement would come together to present their case before this judge in front of all the people that would gather to hear this case. And I want to suggest to you that the Corinthians were doing this because it provided them an opportunity to posture their pride. To show their superiority. To win their case by demonstrating how good they are compared to the person that they're bringing to the court. What it really reminds me of is those nature shows, which I happen to love, by the way. And if you've ever watched them when they're talking about these exotic birds that do what I call love dances during the mating season, there's some crazy stuff that those things do. And it's just hilarious to watch, right? If any of you were around when the county line was here, you may have seen some of this. Remember the peacocks out at the county line? Well, you know that when a peacock in mating season is trying to impress a peahen, and yes, that's what you call them, that's what they do. But if you've actually seen it in person, you'll know that they just don't fan those feathers up as if that's enough, because that's pretty impressive, right? What they also do is they take them and they shake them. And it's like, look at me, look at me. I want to suggest to you that's exactly what the Christians are doing in the Corinthian courts. Look at me. Look at me. Look how impressive I am. Look how I stand out in comparison to everyone else. They're using a worldly judge to promote their place of prominence in the church. And that's why Paul speaks with such outrage. And we don't capture this in the original language when we see the translation but in the original language that word dare is the first word in the sentence and what he's doing is he's trying to express an emotion of outrage of you've got to be kidding me really this is what you're going to do i mean it's bad enough that you have these issues that you can't settle on your own when you claim to be so wise, but then to take it out and air it for all the world to see as an opportunity to posture in your pride, to prove your prominence over someone else. It's an outrage because the pattern of the culture continues to be present within the church. That's an outrage. Paul points to reality, and I believe here he's talking about that heavenly kingdom where God rules. In verse 2, he talks about how saint, the saints will judge the world. He says the saints will judge angels. His main purpose is not to teach some doctrine about our role in the end times. Just trust me that this is not his main point. Instead, what he's trying to do is trying to help us understand the magnitude of responsibility that we ultimately have. We know that there's only one true judge, only one righteous judge, and that is God himself. But what Scripture also speaks of is that we are co-heirs with Christ. That in Revelation, you can look and see that we reign with him when his heavenly city is established on earth. Paul's point is, if Christians are given that magnitude of responsibility, when that eternal kingdom is established, then why in the world are you going to court over such petty differences now? 
Paul knows why. It's their pride. It is an evidence of selfishness in their heart. You know why? He knows that. Because we know the same thing. Pride doesn't like secrecy. (laughs) Pride needs a public showing. Pride needs to gather a crowd. Pride needs to prove to everybody, I'm right. They're wrong. And that's exactly what's happening with the Corinthian church. In the end, they're placing the priority of the individual over the well-being of the community. And that's not a kingdom value. In other words, being right was more important than being unified. So look at how Paul continues in verse 5. He says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brothers? But brothers go to law with brother, and, and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brothers. Earlier in chapter 4, you'll remember Paul said that he didn't write this letter to shame them. Now I want you to know that he's not contradicting himself when he says what he does in in chapter 4. What he's doing is he's helping them understand that they are bringing shame upon themselves. He's exposing their pride that should be shameful to them when they see it at face value. And I want us to make sure we understand the importance of this idea of shame and pride in this culture because we don't get it in our Western culture. We're very much a culture of individualism, and, and so this is not something that we comprehend But I do want you to know that within Asian cultures, this issue of pride and honor is very relevant to what we see in Scripture. Doug McAlpine was telling me about uh, a student, an international student, I think from China, who came to get a Ph.D. here at Texas Tech. In order to do that, he had his master's degree first, accomplished that goal, and then uh, applied to be in the Ph.D. program. Well, he didn't get into the Ph.D. program. But he was unwilling to go back home because it would be a blow to the pride and honor to his family. So he stayed here and got another master's degree on top of the one he already had. Reapplied to the Ph.D. program and ultimately got in after some time, but he will have been here 10 years before he ever goes back because he's unwilling to face the humiliation of not accomplishing what he came here for and the dishonor that that would bring to his family. That same idea of pride and dishonor that we see in the Asian culture that exists today is what you see as relevant in Scripture. The the Corinthians are protecting their pride. This this is a matter of personal honor. They have a, a position that they need to maintain, a place of influence and prominence. And this is one of the ways that they go about establishing that in their culture. But Paul says in verse 6, your pursuit of victory has become your greatest defeat. In your effort to win your case, he says, the whole church loses. It's a triumph of 
selfishness over love. And that's a shame. That's a shame. And that's a shame that they have brought upon themselves because of the selfishness that has poisoned their heart. And then Paul goes and lays down a challenge (laughs) intended to confront this issue of pride in their lives. He says, I challenge you to accept defeat in order to preserve unity. To actually be defrauded (laughs) to protect unity instead of being right and creating division. I want you to live out kingdom values that are completely contrary to what we see in the world. And we've got to understand this because what Paul is communicating to the Corinthians is equally true for us today. Our values, our relationships should stand in stark contrast to what we see in our world today. And so he's telling them, when you live in service to that eternal king, Jesus, our Savior, your relationships look different. He even gave his own example. If you'll think back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, he talks about how when they were reviled, what did they do? They blessed. When they were persecuted, they endured. When they were slandered, in response... They spoke kindly. Those are kingdom values that are completely different than what you see in the world. Just think about Jesus, the king of the universe, who came not to be served, but to serve. And think about his teachings. What did he say? He said, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. If you want to understand what it means to to live in that relationship with God, then you must die to yourself in those selfish desires. You see, the Christian life is a paradox, which by definition is something contrary to the conventional wisdom of the world. And that's exactly how Christians are called to live. But it's only possible if you forfeit pride. You must surrender your right to be right. You must be willing to be wrong, even defrauded, because you believe God's reputation in the church of Jesus Christ is more important than your reputation in the world around you. That's that's a hard kingdom value to live. But that's what God calls us to and strengthens us to carry out through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Grant uh, had a cello recital this last week. Um, it's really fun to see him pick up this instrument and, and learn how to play the cello. And one of the things that it reminded me of, and as far as I know, this is a true story, about Leonard Bernstein, famous conductor. Um, and uh, he was asked by someone, which you would expect, he's probably been asked this, this question a hundred times over, but somebody came up to him and said, what is the hardest instrument to play in an orchestra? And without hesitation, he said, second fiddle. He says, I can find people to find, play first chair violin all day long. But for somebody to play second chair with that same passion, he says, that's really rare. But then he goes on to explain, it's important to find that person because they play harmony to the first chair. 
And without them, there is no harmony in the orchestra. You see, humility is a requirement for harmony. We need people who play second chair. Show me a church that is dominated by love. And I'll show you a church that so vividly and beautifully displays the message of the cross that the world cannot ignore it. Show me a church that is wrought with divisions. And I'll show you a people who have no influence in the world whatsoever. Because they look no different. See, they both tell a story. One is a story of redemption. The other, a walking contradiction. Because they're living lives that betray what they say they believe. And that's Paul's concern in the Corinthian church. And I think we need to ask ourselves as we think through this together, who are we? What are we representing? What values are we living by? And and let's think through that together as we continue on. Look at verse 9. It says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now, many a sermon has been preached on these verses to identify all the awful people who are not going to get into heaven. But I believe that if we look at these verses in the context within which they were written, we'll see that that's not Paul's point. Because he's not pointing at people on the outside. He's looking at people on the inside. And the key to understand what he wants them to appreciate is in the word inherit look at verses 9 and 10 he repeats it twice so it must be important do you not know that the righteous the unrighteous will not inherit and then he says in verse 10 only those nor will thieves and covetous they will not inherit the kingdom of god and so i want you to think about that word inherit and think about what does it mean for somebody to get an inheritance how do they come about that is it based on behavior? Is it, do they earn that reward? No. You get an inheritance because you're an heir. It's an award based on relationship. And so what Paul is saying here is that if these character qualities are a pattern in your life, then how can you have confidence that you're an heir? Because your life doesn't give any family resemblance to the one you claim to serve, the one you call father. If these things are a pattern of unrepentance in your life, then you've forfeited the assurance of your salvation because you bear no family resemblance to the one you claim to serve. You see, Paul made a similar list in chapter 5, verse 10. If you want to, you can go back and look at that list. Some of the same things were communicated there. 
And listen to what he says there. Let me remind you. He says, I do not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with a so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Not even to eat with such of these. So don't get lost in trying to use this list to identify other people. Like some set of spiritual binoculars that you can see all the people who aren't going to get into heaven. Because this is intended to be a mirror. To look at your own life and the patterns that exist in your own heart. To see the resemblance of the one you claim to serve. Because actually, if you look at the list, whether he's talking about gossip, those who practice homosexuality, those who covet, take advantage of each other in court, they all have one thing in common. They put the priority of the individual over the community. They are all infested with the poison of pride. They're lifestyles that are based on my right to choose, my right to do what I want to do, with who I want to do, however I want to do it. Do you not see the the selfishness built inside those practices? Paul's trying to make the, the point to the church that true Christians have been redeemed from such selfish attitudes. That's why he says in verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You of all people should understand what it looks like to be given something that you don't deserve. Look at the list again. You've been washed. In other words, you've been forgiven. Sins removed. You've been sanctified, set apart as God's peculiar people that look and and relate differently than anything else you see in the world. You've been justified, declared righteous, not based on your own merit, but a righteousness that was credited to you by God through Christ as you put your faith and trust in Him. Now, look at the list again. Which one of those did you deserve? That's your inheritance. Which one did you earn? You see, Paul says that we were once dead in our trespasses and sin. That's his point when he says, such were some of you. It's so that we don't look at everybody else and think, what awful people they are. Such were some of you. Living in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh. In other words, consumed, enslaved by your right to do whatever you desire. That's a prison. And as a child of God, you've been released from that prison, to no longer live enslaved by selfish desires, but now to live so that you consider the needs of someone else as more important than your own, that you would even go as far as to be defrauded publicly to preserve the unity of the relationships within the body of Christ. Christianity is a life of paradox. It's unexpected behaviors 
that are counter to the conventional wisdom of the day, including the way we relate to one another inside the life of this church family. Our relationships should reflect the message of the cross so that you see forgiveness instead of retribution. You see encouragement instead of criticism. You see grace instead of judgment. The church should be a peculiar people whose actions are unexpected. In fact, a pleasant surprise in comparison to the world around them. And if you think about it, what a great balance this is to the passage that immediately precedes it on church discipline. Absolutely, we are responsible to hold each other accountable. Why? Because we collectively represent an awesome God, a blessed Savior. And so we should encourage each other even more as the day draws near to live faithful to that life that reflects His character. But at the same time, our goal is not to manage other people's behavior as if what we see on the outside is really the heart of the problem, because it's not. We went to Dallas this uh, Thanksgiving and spent some time with Terry's mom, and many of the homes in Dallas are built on a pier and beam foundation instead of a concrete slab foundation like we have in West Texas. And the reason is, is because there's a lot of clay in the soil in Dallas area. So what happens is, during the heat of the summer, you may drive down the street and some, see somebody watering the foundation of their house thinking, what in the world is that person doing? <laughs> they trying to make their house grow? I mean, what's going on there? Well, the reason they're doing that is to keep the soil moist. Because in the heat, when that clay expands, it actually moves the house. And we've been in Terry's mom's house where, you know, we'll look and, you know, where there are uh, crown molding or seams that come together in the house, there'll be big fractures in the, in the house, inside. And you look at those and say, well, we need to patch that. No, you need to fix the foundation. The cracks are just what's visible of what you see, but it's not the problem. The problem is the foundation. And Paul's looking at the church in Corinth, and he's seeing all these cracks, and he's saying, but that's not the problem. The problem is you have lost your understanding of what it means to be a new covenant community in Christ. You need to remember what Christ accomplished, and how that radically changed your relationship with Him and radically changed your relationship with one another so that how you live and relate with one another should look radically different than anything else you see in the world around you. And so with that in mind, I want to challenge you with some of the things that we take from this passage that relate back a couple of weeks ago to that challenge to go deeper. And the challenge to go deeper in our relationships with one another, in our families, in our marriages. And I'm going to give you three practical steps, three practical things that you can apply in order to, to do that. The first one is this. Listen more than you talk. Listen more than you talk. If you want to go deeper in a relationship, whether it's your marriage, your kids, one another, listen more than you talk. Now, for some of you, the challenge is to keep your mouth closed. <laughs> because you like to talk, and in fact, while they're talking, you're thinking about what you're going to say in response to what they're saying. And so your challenge is to just listen. Listen to what they're saying. Think of, think of things that you can, can ask about what they just said instead of preparing your counter to what they just said. For others of you, like myself, 
your challenge may be the courage to enter into the conversation to begin with. Because you are just as comfortable just kind of being on the outside. And it's okay if somebody comes and talks to you, but maybe not go do the same with someone else. So your challenge is to have courage to enter into the conversation. Take the initiative. And with that, let me give you the second thing. Ask more questions than you give answers. Ask more questions than you give answers. It probably doesn't surprise you if you look at the Gospels, which are recording the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, you will find there reflected over 135 questions. Those are just the ones recorded. And we know that he said and did plenty of other things that aren't in those Gospels. But in that account, 135 questions. Monica Norris is doing a study on the questions of God. Great idea. Because in those questions, we can understand the real heart of the truth God wants us to appreciate. And in the same way, when we go deeper in relationships, we're good question askers because we want to know what's in their heart. We want to know how they feel about certain things. I think this is particularly true as parents. The temptation for us as parents is to always give our kids the right answer. So that when they get in a situation, they do the right thing because they know the right answer. But here's what I found true in my own life, and I think it's true for most of us. I'm going to stand strongest when I believe it for myself. When I've asked the question and I've come up with the answer, my convictions are built on that answer. So, especially as our kids get older, we need to ask more questions than answers we give them so that they develop convictions of what they believe is good and right and true and then affirm those answers for them. If we want to move deeper in relationships with one another, marriage, family, with each other, we need to listen more than we talk and we need to ask more questions than we give answers. The third one's going to be a hard one, okay? And it is this, pray for those who've hurt you. Write Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. This is where Jesus is speaking. And he says, hey, it's easy to love those who love you. But a kingdom value, something that's countercultural to the world around us, is to actually pray for those who persecute you, to love your enemies. It's very peculiar to care for those who've been unkind. But let me suggest this to you. You are never more like Jesus than when you treat people in a way that they don't deserve. You ever thought about that? You're never more like Jesus than when you treat people in a way that they don't deserve. That's his life. His love towards us. So pray for those who've hurt you. The tendency is to separate and distance yourself from those who hurt you. And over time, you find that you become even more embittered and angry towards them. I believe God calls us to pray for our enemies is because not what it does to them, but what it does in our heart. How it softens us. How it helps us see things from an eternal perspective and not from a worldly point of view. So look at your life. And see if in your relationships that you have with other people, it reflects the message of the cross. Do you see that character 
being portrayed in those relationships. And let me encourage you to go deeper. Listen more than you talk. Ask more questions than you give answers. And pray for those who've hurt you. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful for the privilege to come before you, before your word. And as is often the case, your spirit has a way of convicting the very deepest parts of our heart where the core of the issues reside, the very foundation of what we build our life upon. So I pray that as we consider these things from this passage throughout this week, that you will do in us what Paul's words did in the lives of the Corinthians and and get to the heart of the issue. Take us to the foundation. Protect us from looking at all the cracks and things that are visible on the outside and look at what's underneath. And maybe that same issue of, of pride and selfishness that may be at its core disrupting the relationships that we have with one another. Instead, Father, help us to come to a place where we can make that incredibly difficult decision to be defrauded for the sake of unity to protect your reputation inside the relationships of the body of Christ instead of preserving our reputation in the eyes of the world around us. Help us give up our right to be right in order to love. Thank you for that example and the promise that that's possible when we put our trust in you. It's in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Have a great day.